0: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and today I'm joined by Atima O'Mara, former president of the Young Democrats of America and current Virginia DNC member. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Jordan.
0: Yeah, of course. So, today we're here to discuss the results of last night's elections. Usually, odd-year elections don't get much attention nationally, but with Donald Trump in the White House, a lot of folks saw these municipal and state elections as a sort of referendum on Trump and the GOP. Going in, it was pretty clear that Democrats would win back the New Jersey governorship after eight years of Chris Christie, but there were a lot of seats that folks weren't so sure about. The Virginia gubernatorial race in particular was rattling Democrats, but Democrat Ralph Northam pulled through last night with an Unexpected nine-point victory. Moreover, Democrats gained 16 seats in the Virginia House of Delegates, which brings the House of Delegates to a tie with 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. Across the country, progressives picked up essential seats. Two Democrats were elected in Georgia. A Democratic victory in Washington state gave Democrats another trifecta. And Maine voted to expand Medicaid, something the Republican governor has refused to do. All in all, it felt like a pretty good night to me. What are your thoughts? Is this a good sign for the Democratic Party?
1: Oh, yeah. This is a fantastic sign for the Democratic Party. I mean, last year, pretty much everybody knows where they were (laughs) (laughs) Uh, on the day after election, in shock, in bed, in tears, you know, whatever it was to cope after what was not an expected loss, right? And we've had some small, special elections, mostly legislative around the country that have been special, that have been flipped. But... There was these congressional elections and, and, you know, a lot of discussion about where the party was going and if we could rally. And, you know, honestly, here on the ground in Virginia, you know, we thought we would do well, but we thought we would do well within the margin of error, which was the case four years ago. This last night was definitively a blue wave. And looking at not only the numbers and sort of the urban areas, but the suburban areas, the exurban areas. If I was a Republican who has a district that makes that kind of population up, suburban and exurban, which a lot of Republicans do, I would be very nervous about the 2018 elections. And that definitely seems to be the word this morning. We expected the best projection was potentially at the lowest best, five seats pick up, highest seven. Nobody thought the full 17 that were targeted were, we were even going to get close to that. Maybe thought we would pick up the rest in 2019 when the House is back up with the state Senate. But here we are, and we are thrilled
0: so that's interesting because we've previously had Josh Stanfield, executive director of Activate Virginia on the podcast and he said the same thing. Hopefully there are a few seats flipped, but in all likelihood you're going to have to wait till 2019. Mm-hmm. What do you think changed?
1: I think the fact that there has been growing issues for the Trump administration at the national level and between the indictments for some of his campaign team around Russia, their inability to get anything done, and also pushing back on healthcare, something that became amazingly popular again after Trump was elected and protecting that. Pretty much frustration on the ground with some things, how they were going politically in Virginia, combined for a tsunami effect of the regular base coming out, but 10 times of many volunteers and activists doing knocking doors, New voters engaged, voters that may have not been as engaged, getting engaged. Um, Usually it's a struggle in off-year elections. Our our turnout is always so much lower. But we kind of knew things were going to be heading in a positive direction when even just looking at our Republican and Virginia primary Democrats outperformed in turnout. 150,000 more people turned out to vote in the Democratic primary versus the Republican And that was definitely an indicator there was enthusiasm around. And then when you hear, you know, the number of volunteers turned out this year was almost 200% more than what had turned out to volunteer for McAuliffe in 2013 and 66% more than what happened than people who volunteered even on GOTV weekend in 2016. You know something's happening. The enthusiasm is real and it's there. Um, I was handing out sample ballots myself. For the party uh, at my polling place yesterday, and a woman came up to me, young woman, and she was like, I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm wet, but damn it, I am here to vote and grab the Democratic sample ballots, you know, headed into the polls. Um, and that was sort of the sentiment from a lot of people. Well, knocking doors myself, you know, handing out sample ballots, uh, just talking to people on the ground. There's just frustration uh, with what's happening, and it's finally coming out.
0: So, you mentioned turnout, and voter turnout, of course, tends to be very low in non-presidential elections, especially with people of color and young people who are really the base of the Democratic Party, but according to exit polls, it seems that the racial composition of the electorate didn't really change from 2016 to 2017 in Virginia, meaning that people of color actually turned out. And of course, Ed Gillespie ran an incredibly racist campaign, but Northam came out against sanctuary cities and left his black running mate, Justin Fairfax, off of campaign material so, I was really unsure what turnout would look like among people of color, and honestly, I would have understood if turnout was kind of low, but that wasn't the case. Why do you think that is?
1: I think a couple things that were unique to specifically Virginia. We ended up being a bit of the heart of some of the culture wars that are happening on the national level, the NFL talk about the Confederate statues. It started because those conversations were happening in towns across the South and um, Charlottesville, Virginia was one of them. That's the place I went to college, that's the place I started my own political activism. And it's a great progressive town who had gone through the conversation and progression to realize that they wanted to change the names of these parks, that they wanted to remove these statues, And that was something they had come together as a community to decide. And then a bunch of outsiders come in and launch a counter-protest and several um, where people were killed, people were badly injured. And to see that play out and how people were emboldened and thanking the current president in the White House for supporting them, or or giving implicit support, rather, Um, and what they were doing and saying many sides, both bad people on both sides, that was, to some people, like, casting their vote, especially in communities of color, was a a casting of vote against the obvious in their minds racism that that they see um, coming from the White House, um, the xenophobia coming from the White House, something of which I agree
0: with. The culture war is something that was really at the forefront of my mind going into last night. It was a worry for me, but last night ended up being a pretty big victory for diversity. In Virginia, Danica Rome, a transgender woman, defeated the Republican incumbent who was one of the most violently anti-LGBTQ legislators in the country. Danica's going to be the first out trans person to be elected to a state legislative chamber in 25 years. Virginia's House of Delegates will now have its first Asian-American woman, first out lesbian, first two Latina women, Knoxville elected its first South Asian woman to city council, Charlotte elected its first black woman as mayor, Hoboken elected the first Sikh mayor in New Jersey history, New Jersey and Virginia both elected black lieutenant governors, New Jersey's Sheila Oliver will be the first black woman to serve as lieutenant governor in state history, the list goes on. This is really encouraging to me, particularly since a lot of Democrats have been saying that the party needs to shift right and abandoned civil rights almost to win over Trump voters. And the victories we saw last night really disprove the anti identity politics nonsense that we've been seeing over the past year. We saw progressive, even far left queer people, people of color, queer people of color win seats even in the face of incredibly racist, transphobic attacks from the Republican Party. And the major anti immigrant Republicans running in New York City, Virginia, and New Jersey failed pretty miserably. Do you think national Democrats are going to change their tune on the whole identity politics debate in the face of last night's results?
1: I definitely hope so. And I think that there are some indicators of that. A tweet that I shared that's been retweeted several hundred times and almost now, I think favorited a thousand times, is the gender and race breakdown of the Virginia elections on the governor's level. And it showed 91% of African-American women voting for Ralph Northam. Uh, 47% of white women voters uh, voted for Ralph Northam, and less than, I want to say, 36% of white men voted for um, Ralph uh, Northam, and um, somewhere in the 80s for African American men who voted for Ralph Northam. Those numbers are very clear where the party base is, right? It didn't show the numbers on Latinos, but that African Americans, communities of color in general, are the base. They're holding this party up. They should be elevated more to leadership positions, be part of decisions and discussions on... Outreach um, as well as running for public office, more so because they will be they will be accepted. they are part of the American fabric, and people want to see all of our communities, the majority of Americans anyway want to see um, you know diverse representation in public office. Uh, we are a better country when that happens um, and so even just in polling numbers, I think essence I want to say did a polling, a joint poll with Black Women Roundtable that showed that African-American women voters were getting disenchanted with the Democratic Party. Um, not that they were going to go vote for Republicans, but they just might consider not voting at all that they felt like they were being taken for granted. Um, those numbers were showing much after the uh, 2016 election. I think that's a result of the whole let's go after the white working class voters who went very strongly for Trump and really aren't in any shape or form looking like they're coming back. It's, I don't think that we should not mm-hmm. not talk to white working class voters. I just think we shouldn't be concerning ourselves with those who, you know, found it possible to look past all of his awful, hateful rhetoric on the campaign trail and vote for him. There are many white voters who are working class who didn't vote. Those folks, I'd love to engage again in the process. Um, but, you know, the ones who found it in themselves to be able to vote for Trump, like, they're no, there's nothing they're going to see in this Democratic Party, especially after the folks we elected last night across the country, yep. that they're going to want to come yep. back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's this myth that's gained a lot of traction ever since the Republican primary that Trump's base is the white working class and that Democrats can't win anything without winning them back. And as we saw last night, this simply isn't true, and moreover, Trump's base isn't some economically anxious coal miner in the Rust Belt, it's just an affluent, racist white person in the suburbs. The majority of his supporters make over 50000 a year, and studies have consistently shown that they're driven by cultural values, not economic insecurity. Which brings up a few points for me regarding Virginia's gubernatorial election. First is that... Ed Gillespie ended up tacking really far to the right and making his campaign all about immigration, focusing on a gang called MS-13 with The narrative basically being that brown immigrants are going to rape and kill white people, which is pretty typical GOP fear-mongering. But Northam kind of conceded on that issue, coming out against sanctuary cities just days before the election, which led a lot of undocumented activists in even the progressive PAC, Democracy for America, to unendorse him. Undocumented activist Tony Choi tweeted, what good is taking down all the Confederate monuments if you mimic their ideology? And that's a sentiment I deeply empathize with, because just a year ago, I never thought I'd consider not voting for the Democratic candidate. But recently, with Democrats and progressives like Ralph Northam and even Bernie Sanders compromising on human rights, I've become a lot less sure. I'm glad Northam won, but there's something really painful about the idea of voting for someone who doesn't believe in your rights. Have you experienced this conflict at all, and how do you deal with it?
1: I would say it is something I find interesting as an African American person who started her career very much Um doing a lot of activist work, working for a labor union, um, working for voter registration organizations in lower-income communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, and also working in democratic politics because I saw the issues that concern those communities most affected by political and policy debate, and the Democratic Party cleaved most of the ideals that I thought would benefit these communities. What most people will know if you look at my Twitter, I'm also a very strong women's rights supporter, specifically focused on reproductive justice issues. And, you know, it's been very frustrating, for one, to have the continued dialogue in the party that uh, about how abortion should be one of those issues on which we compromise. That is something mm-hmm. I don't think we should compromise on, because... Being able to determine when and if you have a child is very much tied to economics, it's very much tied to a woman's well-being. You can literally look at numbers that show women who were lower income, who are able to get their abortion, uh, are worse off economically than those who are able to um, and make those decisions about their lives have, have access to birth control that even stops them from getting pregnant. And when you're having sort of those discussions in, about your humanity um, as a woman that we can compromise on this issue, I'm like, no, I'm not compromising on what I determine what my direction of my life is going to be. And having a child is a very big economic issue decision Mm -hmm. so yeah i've definitely struggled i've definitely struggled when our party after you know 2016 was saying we should be focusing on the folks that were talked about by uh, jd or whatever his name was who wrote hillbilly elegy it's like i'm not saying those folks don't have something in common don't have an economic struggle but you know when they take their economic insecurities or concerns and say it's the fault of the latino who's trying to find a job, that's why I can't get ahead. It's the fault of the other immigrants that, you know, they're murderers and and, and out there trying to, like, hurt us as, as part of sort of a larger immigration reform debate for, like, the person who is, doesn't have a driver's license who's driving a car and, and using that one or two instances to derail an entire topic about comprehensive immigration reform. It's really hard. So I guess sort of the The short way to to answer that is i have come' in, I'm come into that conflict, and what I've tried to do when that happens is you know really be loud about my opinion like look it, it's not just um it's it, it's not just an activist perspective um, we have to be listening to what's happening on the ground and in the case of women's health you know eighty five percent of democratic women or more believe abortion should be legal and almost all cases uh, regardless of the situation and that's your base like you know yes. uh, like that's your base you know it's the same with issues concerning criminal justice reform um, it's great to have somebody like Justin Fairfax who I know quite well we've worked on um, worked on some boards together you know become lieutenant governor because he as a young African-American man who grew up in DC metro area can say I know how bad Criminal justice that disproportionately affects African Americans can affect families' lives. Um, I've seen it. I saw it in my neighborhood, and you know, it needs to stop. It needs to end. You needs to lend a voice to that. I'm not saying that there aren't white colleagues who um, in Democratic politics who haven't supported that, but having faces on these issues is important and stepping up into leadership. Because if we just step away from the table, we see the argument, and that's not good either.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How do you think that we should hold the party accountable? Now the next governor is going to be a Democrat who's against sanctuary cities. How do we deal with that? How do we reckon with that?
1: It's being active. And when I say being active, it's, you know, the thing that I think Democrats have traditionally not done as well as Republicans is that Republicans get Republicans elected and then they're like all up in their face about tax reform and healthcare, like they had them terrified in 10, right? And, you know, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And, they, and they've always held the line because they, the, their base is very active. I started to see that with Democrats and progressives, you know, overall. So people who are maybe progressive but didn't necessarily call themselves Democrats. But in regards to holding the party accountable after Trump got elected, like, no, you will not be the party that compromises with Trump on just about every issue, especially as it relates to healthcare, especially as it relates to disability rights, as it relates to women's rights, whatever. So it's making those calls. It's going to those legislative offices saying, like, hey, I knocked on all these doors. I donated this money, my time. You have to listen to these communities. You know, and I would say in the case of Ralph Norton, you know, he's a very good guy in that, You know, a lot of his opinions he's admitted changed, like some people know, like I think most um, know, but he started off his career um, not in politics, but he had personally been a Republican and had voted as such. And over time, he had evolved to the point where by the time he ran, he was a Democrat, he was pro-choice. And that was through evolution and that was through conversations, largely of which he credits um, his wife and some people in his family. Um, having discussions about women 's health as being a doctor himself, being in an area you know in the in the state where there's a lot more more African Americans so um he 's the guy who definitely shows himself to be very open to to further dialogue, and understanding the human rights behind an issue and I definitely encourage folks to be at his office and at lobby days as much as possible, you know, even though we have taken the house that doesn 't mean we should fall asleep on our laurels. we should definitely make sure that they are Passing the agenda we care about.
0: So, on the other side, Donald Trump slammed Gillespie on Twitter for not being Trumpy enough, which is. it came off as a bit weird to me given how Gillespie really tried to run this really racialized anti immigration campaign. What do you think Republicans are going to learn from this election? Are they going to become more racist, more like Trump? Are they going to see this as a rejection?
1: I think. On their side, they're going to figure out what they're going to do. I think I was talking this morning with another fellow DNC member speculating about hearing about Bob Goodlatte in the 6th Congressional District potentially considering retiring a long-running Republican member of Congress in Virginia. And I said, does he think his numbers look off? Because that's a pretty good Republican stronghold. And he said, no, he just may not want to preside over Trump's impeachment hearings. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, that may not even be it. It may also be that he has to decide if he wants to run on the platform of Trump or not. And that's really what it's coming down to for a lot of these Republicans, that Gillespie started off his campaign trying to be the moderate Bush Republican that he's kind of always sort of been on some issues, and that wasn't catching fire. And when that wasn't catching fire, he started doing the MS-13 ad, started doing uh you know the voting rights ad that was saying you know we shouldn't be restoring voting rights because this one person who got through in the glitch was you know a repeat child molester and you know all of these inflammatory culture war type of ads right and he sort of dabbled in trumpism and that was you know resoundingly rejected so i think it's sort of a a moment of conscience for the republican party some probably will run on the Trump stuff because they always had been before even Trump was there. They're like this ultra right-wing Tea Party, Mike Pence types, right? Um, and they'll do whatever. And then there's going to be some who like may feel that they don't want to do that. And will it help? Or if they try to run as the traditional Republicans they've always run as, will they lose? And do they want to face that? So I think that's the the decisions they have to make. And that's going to be interesting to watch how how many more retirements... <laughs> go hang it out with my family we're going to see in the next few months. So
0: (laughs) So with Democrats gaining trifectas in New Jersey and Washington, with Democrats having infinitely more power in Virginia, what do you think the party's top priority should be?
1: Going into our General Assembly for next year, um, I know that the top priority, especially if we get the majority, is going to be Medicaid expansion. There are still 400,000 plus Virginians who still don't have health care as a result. And uh, Medicaid expansion has brought many jobs for folks. And we're just sending money to other states that's actually technically ours. So if we're in, uh, actually gonna, we're still in the count, it's gonna be recounts for three days on uh, two, three races, determines where we're gonna end up. That's definitely gonna be high on the list of priorities.
0: Shifting a bit, according to early counts, Democrats statewide beat Republicans by over nine points. That should mean that Democrats have a majority in the legislature, but instead they were only able to shrink the Republican supermajority to a 50-50 tie. That's not to say that Democrats Mm -hmm. didn't do incredibly last night, but without gerrymandering Mm -hmm. they would have done a hell of a lot better. Fortunately, because of last night's victories, Virginia Democrats will have veto power over the next redistricting for the first time in three decades. Do you think that things are going to get better across the country after the next census and redistricting?
1: Yeah, if we're in a better place, Democrats are in a better place electoral-wise in state legislatures around the country, absolutely I could see things getting better after redistricting. I mean, Republicans' playbook was run the tables to be able to control the maps and 10 and they successfully did that um, or than I guess ten, ten 10 through 12 and they successfully did that and that resulted in a lot of elections and state legislative seats where it really shouldn't have happened in Virginia right before redistricting we were within five seats of getting the majority and then after redistricting You know, you saw how far the gap was. We were in the 30s. Having the table now will definitely change the game, certainly for us and for any other state that's able to accomplish what we accomplished last night.
0: Do you think that all of these elections have big implications for 2018?
1: Yeah, big implications being districts that people readily thought were going to be Republican or have traditionally been Republican may not be so. Between new voters, between new angry re engaged voters, and a now very mobilized base. That's gonna be, you know, like I said earlier, it's gonna be a real big thought for Republicans. Do I really wanna put in the the bazillion dollars that's gonna be needed to fight off what, you know, is gonna be kind of a blue wave? I mean, there are Republicans who are established members who are not raising on par with the Democrats. Um, who are in, like, you know, five, seven white primaries getting ready to challenge an 18, right? Like, they're collectively raising more, and even in some cases individually raising more, than the sitting member of Congress for a few years. So, yeah, the map's going to be interesting. A lot of people have been put on notice. that will have, That's what the implications are going to be for 18.
0: Something I'm concerned about is keeping the momentum going beyond Donald Trump. I'm really glad that Donald Trump's mobilized a lot of people, but I think that Donald Trump's more of the it of the Republican Party. He's a product of Mm -hmm. it, not an aberration. And I'm concerned about Democrats keeping up the momentum after he's gone. How do you think that we can make that happen?
1: I actually really think engaging a lot with these activist organizations that are progressive partners being part of the DNC transition committee when Perez took over one of the subcommittees was figuring out how we can do better in engaging with these new progressive partners and are currently having existed for a while progressive partners to do work on the ground. Um, There's no reason that we shouldn't be working hand in hand on races in states, you know, so our DPVA might be part of, the Democratic Party of Virginia rather, is part of a a voters table where also Planned Parenthood sits or also League of Conservation voters sit and like the only thing we discuss is like all right what voters what candidates do we have in common and how can we work together some of that functions already happen but how can we really formalize that how can we really use our resources to best effect um, how can we really listen to sort of you know what the grassroots and voters really want um, and and reflect that through our organizing work Mm -hmm.
0: lastly i want to talk about turning out different demographics because clearly in my eyes people of color are the key to the party but in new jersey for example according to early exit polls it seems that not only did a majority of white women vote for the republican candidate for governor a greater percentage of white women voted for the republican candidate for governor than white men which it, it was surprising, even though a majority of white women did vote for Donald Trump. How do you think Democrats should handle the issue of turning people out by race?
1: I mean, I think it should be focused, our party should be very focused on trying to turn out every voter in general. But I think as it regards communities of color, and I'll speak specifically to African American because I know that turned out more than others, is not trying to show up every 4th October at a, at a church or something but showing up regularly that keeps that base very organized. I know that that's been a concern that we've heard from African-American voters and activists, and I think that's a fair criticism. Um, Some states do very well at engaging, and a lot of them don't. Um, And so we need to ask the strategy. You know, it's something that Tom Perez admitted is a problem that the party has, and it's a strategy that we need to revisit as to how we engage, uh, especially with the newer generation of African-American voters. Like, you know, I think the Democratic Party really understands African-American voters over 50 very well. Under 50, uh, millennials, Gen Xers, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, Generation Z, this generation post-millennial, less so. And they're a different, you know, kind of voter. uh, While they have an appreciation of the civil rights history, it's not as relevant. There are young people who don't know uh, that the NAACP still exists or has the preeminence that it used to have, or even did have preeminence. Um, some of that's just due to education, and not as much information about the NAACP that used to be out there, like um, it used to be. But they're looking to other organizations to do their activist work, and they're hanging out and doing different things. Um, there's not as many African American churchgoers, and younger African American generations You've got a lot more mixed uh, interracial families. Um, you know, I think they were saying one in four um, kids being born as a person of color or, you know, I think half of millennials are coming from multiracial or a quarter of them are coming from multiracial families. So uh, it's a different way. It's it's trying to get to know these voters. Who are they? What motivates them? And something I'm working on, the Democratic uh, Party in my state is doing some roundtables with African-American women under the age of 50 discuss like, all right, let's not assume what they want through data. Let's also talk to these communities. What do my peers want? Or what's the best way to find them, engage with them? All of that. And so I think that also applies to voters of different races, like, you know, uh, a younger white person is definitely not going to have the same priorities as an older white person. Also depends on, are they an urban white millennial? or Are they a rural white millennial? It has to be kind of really going into those communities, doing listening tours, something that Hillary Clinton was very, very famous for and served her well in regards to thoughtful policy, I think. And that could be useful if we did that for thoughtful organizing within the party.
0: So you mentioned a bit of your plans for organizing. What What is your future in terms of the Democratic Party personally?
1: I continue to hope to serve in the role of DNC. I was elected in 2016 of last year. You know, I thought when I came in, as said all of us uh, who got elected Uh, That We were going to be serving with Hillary Clinton as president. That didn't happen. And so in some ways, it's an interesting opportunity to help reshape the party um, into doing more effective work. And um, I guess that would be the silver lining if there ever was one. And so that's what I hope to do. Next few years, use my role to work with my state party on ways that we can engage millennials, people of color, new Americans, being somebody who's from all three communities. And also in just doing my own work professionally, I'm starting to do an actual consulting to candidates who come from that rising American electorate, like millennials, people of color, women who are first-time candidates, um, who don't traditionally come from the political structure but are those folks who stepped up to run for office this year and do that for 18 and 19 and 20, making sure they understand the process Um, and using my experience as I worked on campaigns and work within the party structure to inform them on how to be successful. It's it's better than me working for like 10 candidates, it's better than working for just the one. And um, also supporting organizations that have started in the wake of the Trump election to actually support those efforts going forward.
0: So, where can folks find your work online?
1: I guess two places. One, um atima-amara.com uh just so some of my writing, it's about my media work, and get a sense of my values and things that are important. Um but I started recently an LLC, um Amara Strategy Group to finally formalize some of my consulting work. And that shows a little bit more of my what are my electoral priorities, um, what organizations I'm trying to work with and if you're interested in some of my work, you know, certainly reach out. Um, I want to I wanna be a big part of making sure um, folks of my generation are active in the process and at the table.
0: Are you on social media at all?
1: I am. Atima underscore Omara on Twitter and the same for Instagram. And I have a public page on Facebook, Atima Omara.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting.
0: Yeah. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics, and I've just spoken with Atima Omar, former President of the Young Democrats of America and current Virginia DNC member. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be discussing the Alabama Senate election. Thanks for listening.